Tonight I'd like to talk about repurposing. Repurposing experience, but I think I'll back into the talk in a little bit of a different way. So if I was to say to you, uh, let's reflect on creativity and spirituality. What might organically arise for you would be the arts, these expressions of certain understandings or aspirations and how they can represent spiritual longing or spiritual wisdom. So you might think of, for instance, in Europe, the great Gothic cathedrals and their stained glass windows and consider all the labor that went into those, the generations of local people who raised money for them, who contributed the labor for them, who had a long-range vision that in many cases required many generations to actually complete. Or you might think of uh, the, the Pietà, the statue of Michelangelo, of the mother of Jesus holding his body after the crucifixion, and the compassion and the poignancy that that statue evokes. Or perhaps your mind goes in the direction of Zen gardens, and you can think of the kind of elegant beauty that's there, the use of space, the use of careful composition of elements, uh, asymmetry, just enough imperfection to make it right. Or you might think of sacred music, the use of sound and text to speak our longings for transcendence and the way that kind of music can open the heart. Or Tibetan tankas, this proliferation of beauty and texture and weaving and color and the way they carry meaning and evoke our transformational potential. Or you might even look at statues that are present in the hall, the Kuan Yin on the way into the hall and then the Buddha image here on the the rock, the rock, the rock at the forest refuge and how they represent in Uh, the figure of a body, what enlightened energy might look like, what it might feel like in a way that we can understand. So there are these different ways we might think of spirituality and creativity. And there are other examples too. For instance, I often think of the Shaker community as an example of creativity and spirituality and how they merge and how they mingle. So this is a particular group of religious practitioners that came here mostly from England, 
right around the turn of our uh, American Revolution for independence from uh, England. And they, these people were inventive in many different ways and remarkable. So one thing that was remarkable about them was that their founder, their key person, was someone named Anne Lee, who you might notice is female. And this was at a time where the very thought that a woman could be a spiritual authority was regarded as just a blasphemous and somewhat ridiculous kind of notion. And these Shakers lived together in communities and they gave up family ties, property, and uh, worldly activities in order to know, as they said, by daily experience, the peaceable nature of Christ's kingdom. So these people were progressive in many different ways, socially progressive in many different ways. So for instance, 75 years before the formal end of uh, slavery in the United States, these people's communities were characterized by uh, lived lives of social, sexual, economic, and spiritual equality within the group. So it was a mixed group of men and women. So the Shakers had, in addition to the creativity of their expression of their spiritual understanding and their community values, were also very creative in art and music. So particular music and sacred dance. So they would sing their hymns and um, one of the most uh, known of these is a, a hymn called Tis a gift to be simple. And they would dance communally often as they sang, as they worshipped. So the hymn went something like, Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where you ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come out right. And they would turn, they would dance, and this was, was regarded as a radical thing to be doing too. So ecstasy would arise for them sometimes as they sang and danced and they would shake. And that's why they were called shakers. And sometimes members of the local community were invited to visit their, their uh, worship and would either be fascinated by this or would regard this as uh, something to be aghast about. But we, knowing the seven factors of awakening, would, re would recognize piti, the quality of piti, the quality of rapture in the shaking. So you might get the idea that these shakers, these are very 
unworldly people, you know, kind of very idealistic and, uh, and they were idealistic. But there's something else that's very interesting about them from my pers- perspective, which was they were exceedingly practical people. So whatever was going on in terms of how they understood reality and how they, they understood their place in the bigger picture, they were very grounded people. So they expressed their values and their spiritual understanding in everything that they did. So one of their slogans was, hands to work and heart to God. And from their hands came some of the most beautiful and functional of things. They would say, beauty rests on utility. So not too far from here, in uh, Hancock, Massachusetts, there is is, uh, a preservation of some of their uh, buildings and sites. And it's an amazing place to go and visit if you ever get the chance to go. They, the cabinetry that they made, the furniture that they made, today if it came up for auction would be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases, maybe even millions, I don't know. If you go to Hancock, there's this amazing barn the Hancock barn, they call it, that's circular in nature. It's made uh, mostly out of stone on the outside. It was completely functional. They had figured out what the optimal way was to get the hay in and remove the manure and to get the cows in and get the cows out. It's filled with light. It's filled with light from the top. Beautiful, beautiful place. You can tell by looking at the barn who the people were. So they had impeccable presence and it was expressed in everything about their lives from the barn to many inventions that became commonplace in use in in our culture. Things like the clothespin, the straight broom, the circular saw. They invented all these very practical things while living this life of the spirit. Because the furniture, the barn, the music, and everything weren't really the point, but it was a reflection of their inner experience. Seeing deeply, they are able to express beauty in a harmonious way that was also deeply functional. There's another example of this functional creativity that we could reflect on tonight too, and that is related to the martial art of Aikido. Any practitioners here? A little bit? Aikido, Aikido, Aikido. I did a very small amount during my serious martial arts period mostly studied other things, but it's a very, very interesting system of self-defense. 
You know, when you think of martial arts, you tend to think of something violent, right? Like somebody that can give you a good snap kick and break boards or somebody that can, uh, you know, punch through uh, a piece of stone or something, break bricks by slapping down. You think of it in that kind of way. But Aikido was very different in its basic premises. So the name of this system is often translated as the way of unifying with life energy or the way of harmonious spirit. And its Japanese founder, who was a man named Morihi Ushiba, his goal was to create a system of self-defense that would allow a person under attack to quote-unquote control aggression without inflicting injury. So this Aikido is what's considered to be a grappling system in the land of martial arts typology, meaning here there's a deliberate physical joining with the attacker. So it's close in, mano a mano, you might say. So in close connection with the energy of the attacker, the defenders is able to harmonize with and blend with and redirect the forces directed against him and her. So by going in close, by touching, by sensitive kind of connection and by moving with, instead of opposing head on, the practitioner needs to use very little physical energy. She or he feels the attacker's momentum by connecting with it, joining with their energy and uses entering and turning movements, right? So instead of resisting what's coming, there's actually a close connection with, a moving with, a harmonizing with. And as for the role of the attacker, because when you train in this style, you're trained in both roles, the attacker is the one who practices being thrown so the, pra- the attacker practitioner is training to become calm and flexible in all disadvantageous off-balance situations. Learning to yield to a throw reduces the risk of in- injury. So this is very dance-like when you see it actually happening, when people who are skilled. There's a lot of grappling, there's a lot of throwing, there's a lot of circular kinds of motions, people hitting the mat and rolling through and popping up and quite dance-like. So the founder said, to control aggression without infliction of injury is the art of peace. And how was this done? How is this possible? By learning to be completely present, centered and calm, so calm that the movement of energy is accurately sensed and allowing movement to happen as it must. When deep balance sensitivity controls the angle of entry into experience, skillful relationship results. 
So now you may be saying, well, this is kind of interesting, or maybe it's not that interesting. When are we going to get to the Dharma piece? So, you know, why are the Shakers and the Aikido practitioners coming up in a Dharma talk, and what's the reference to creativity? Because what we're doing in practice is essentially a creative act. Not in the sense of making something up out of nothing or in wishful thinking, but in the sense of finding for ourselves a new harmonious and functional way of relating to the reality of our existence as human beings. Of using the raw materials of life skillfully with artistry. So you could say in a certain kind of way that the Buddha himself performed the ultimate grapple and throw to use the language of Aikido. You know, we said before, okay, there's a creation of art directly. That's a beautiful and inspirational thing. And then we said, well, buildings that shine with beauty and with harmony and function, that's a beautiful and practical thing. And a martial art that redirects aggression and preserves the safety of both parties, preserves peace, that shows the power of equanimity in action. but to actually take the very stuff of reality, its texture high and low, and create a system of liberation is an act of genius, and that's what the Buddha did. So I hold, I understand the Buddhist path as one of beauty, of functional practicality, and of freedom. So if you think of it, The Buddha, like a great artist or like a great designer or engineer, he started with an investigation of the situation or the problem that he wanted to address or the statement he wanted to express. And his question, his real question was, what to do with, what to do about samsara? what to do with, what to do about samsara. And the unvarnished truth of suffering really was his field of investigation. And we know that if you take the Buddha's life story as plausible, there was a very strong altruistic motivation that was there behind it all, driving him to try to figure out what can be done to relieve not only his own suffering, but the suffering of all beings. And the understanding that he won was accomplished through heroic, direct, personal observation of dukkha in all its forms. So that's how he did it. Where's the dukkha? What is dukkha? Where is the dukkha? And the first noble truth of the Four Noble Truths lays out this finding, the truth of suffering in all its dimensions. 
And from his very close watching, one of the things that he started to notice were that there were certain repetitive characteristics that are observable in conditioned things that became important clues. He started to notice what are referred to in the teachings as the three characteristics. The truth of impermanence. The truth of unsatisfactoriness. The truth of not-self. And looking very carefully, he, he discovered that, hey, everything that's conditioned has these aspects or can be described as having these three properties. None of them stay around. None of them can be made to hold still. Oh, and there's something very unsatisfying about that because we can't get it to be the way that we want it to be and keep it that way. Oh, and that means that we're not really in control of conditioned reality. Oh, not self. And these three things are the grain, the texture, the functional behavior of all conditioned things. So then you would have to say, well, these three things, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, these three characteristics need to be accommodated need to be dealt with in some way, in some way, with any system that you could find to free yourself from the suffering that seems to be inherent in them. Because you can't just skip over it, right? Because it's in everything. It's present in all conditioned things, these same three things. So there's a way of, uh, an expression that's sometimes used in uh, engineering or in design, probably in a lot of other things as well. They're called, uh, it's called design properties. You familiar with that phrase? Design properties. Kind of like, well, copper is very malleable. So you probably wouldn't want to build, you know, a bridge out of it. And, well, iron is really strong, but it has no flexibility. So you wouldn't want to, Use it in things where, uh, you know, you need flexibility. And, you know, cotton is absorbent, but it doesn't dry fast. And, right? Oak is hard, but it's, uh, you know, it burns kind of slow. It works good in the fireplace, but if, you know, if you're trying to shape it, you, you know, it takes a lot of work. And pine you can shape, but pine is soft. So if you use it in a floor, it's going to get dinged up, right? It's all talking about the design properties of different kinds of things. The Buddha said these three things are design properties of everything that's conditioned. The three characteristics are always there. So in some way, you have to figure out how to use this raw material to construct the path to freedom because there is nothing else outside of it, right? You have to account for these. They have to be used in a certain kind of way. 
So from the Buddha's own deep exploration into suffering came deep insight into the cause. And the understanding arose from very close connection to his immediate experience with conditioned things. There arose the insight into the longing, the wanting, the clinging, the thirsting, the action of the human mind seeking to control suffering and finding happiness, but acting out of accord with the nature of things because of the way it is craving for immediate control. So he came to know the truth of craving as the source of suffering, which is the second noble truth. Craving born from ignorance. Trying to find in conditioned impermanent, not-self things a remedy that isn't available. But then here's the brilliant redirect in the Buddhist system. So you could say the Buddha was a a student of suffering until he became a master of causal insight. He started to realize that there's a way in which you can learn to read the grain of these raw materials, know them completely, and come into harmony with reality the way that it is, right? If the suffering, discretionary human suffering, is rooted in craving, and the craving is rooted in ignorance, which is what the Buddha teaches, it's delusion that is the source of the craving, How do you overcome ignorance and the craving and the suffering that follows? By increasing your contact with reality. And you can understand in a certain kind of way that what we're doing with insight meditation practice is increasing our contact with moment-by-moment reality. Asking the mind to sustain mindfulness about what arises and passes away as best we can. So this requires pliancy of mind, a kind of sensitive connection with things as they are, almost like the kind of blending that I described when I was talking about Aikido, right? Learning how to move with it, being in there close enough with what's actually happening So the energy goes into the connection, into the going with, not operating at cross purposes, not, you know, playing donkey and pulling against it, not vacating the psycho-emotional premises and pretending that nothing is being experienced, but by moving in close, engaging in the grapple. So the Buddha started to understand, oh, this very conditionality of all things, when closely attended to, has a potential upside. Because just as we can suffer from an ignorant relationship with conditionality, by not seeing or not accommodating the three characteristics, if we see it clearly, if we learn to blend with it, 
if we learn to harmonize with it, we can actually use conditionality because the universe is lawful to begin to open up conditions of deeper mindfulness, more peace, greater wisdom, more compassion, all of these wholesome and skillful states, all of which are nourished by mindfulness as a quality. So the relative subjective experience improves over time. There's less psychological, emotional torment. There can still be body pain, of course. You got a body, you got body pain, at least sometimes. But the pain, the suffering, the futility of kind of teeing off in resistance to conditioned reality, that can drop away. So the Buddha, in a certain kind of way, in his whole method, it's a kind of reverse engineering. Once he saw how suffering was created by the grasping coming from ignorant craving, he turned his mind to, okay, if that's how it's caused, how, what can you put in motion that addresses those causes, that moves the mind to that still point, to that zero point, to that point of collectedness, to that point of peace, that point of poised non-resistance that has within it beauty and truth, love. And his description of how to do that is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. That's the formula. He's telling you, this is how you do it. This is what's going on. That's what he says in the Four Noble Truths. This is how to work with it. This is the Eightfold Path. It's right here. This is how suffering is caused. This is what what happens, the causes and conditions that result in this. This is how you undo it. So learning how to use this truth of dependent origination, that things arise because of causes and conditions and not randomly, is really the key to the Buddha's system. So there's a famous... piece of teaching called the Dhammapada. And this is the Buddha's own words uh, upon reaching, awakening for himself. So he said, through many births I have wandered on and on, searching for but never finding the builder of this house. You house builder, you are seen. You will not build a house again. All the rafters are broken, the ridge pole destroyed, the mind gone to the unconstructed has reached the end of craving. So he's talking there about his discovery of the freedom of liberation from ignorance. He's basically saying, I see what's going on here. I see how the mind gets messed up and confused and entangled. I see how that happens. And now that I see it, I can be free from it. And I will not be confused in that way again. 
And then, of course, from this, then the Buddha went to teach. So here we are, you know, 2,500 years ago, a set of instructions are conveyed to us. How we can use the very conditionality of phenomenon to undo our own binding, to deconstruct our own experience of suffering. So like the Buddha, we look around to assess our own raw materials, our own resources with which to escape the enmeshment in delusion. So like the Buddha, we have the five aggregates. Like, you know, their texture, rough and smooth, pleasant and unpleasant, directly knowable, the five aggregates. Nothing hidden there, the five aggregates, just as they're experienced. We have the raw materials of the arisings at the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, and what happens at the sixth door, the mind door. Thoughts, emotions, intentions, memories, fantasies. But unlike the Buddha, who before his quest had no set of instructions, we've actually got instructions. So we've got the directions, we've got the map, we've got the formula. We've got our own laboratory. Right, we've got our own raw materials. So also from the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, all experience is preceded by mind, by heart-mind. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with an unskillful mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So in seeking to walk our own path to liberation, we find in, for instance, our quest to understand the grain of reality as it is, in that we find the development of clear seeing and wisdom, trying to know moment by moment what we directly experience. In our blending with things, in our letting go of resistance, we see the development of renunciation and generosity. In our moving with the flow of things skillfully, we see the creation of harmony, the way we can end the battle between how it is and how we want it to be or don't want it to be. So this is an amazing insight into the point of the teachings, which is in the immediate sense of things, we don't, generally speaking, control what arises. But in the longer term, 
understanding, we can learn to be with what immediately arises that leads us in the direction that we want our evolution to go. So in immediate terms, not much control. In longer terms, by attending wisely to the immediate, very much control. Very much control. This process of self-guided, I'll use the big S in this case, evolution. So the Buddha says again, as irrigators guide water, Fletchers shape arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. The well-practiced tame themselves. And through this practice, we actually become reality, opening up to itself in a creative and conscious relationship at last. Or another way to put it is the lotus knows itself opening. So let's just let that soak in for a moment. That's always the question, how to be in wise relationship with this, just now. That's the PowerPoint. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.